My name is Steven. And my name is Gannon. And today, I'm seeing double. We've got Gannon's twin brother in here with us, Mr. Dylan Phillips. Hello, Dylan. Hello! He just waved at the microphone. I sure did. Hello, audience. Add that to the... It's crazy how you can fit so many people in such a small box. Why, thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, We are iPhone size today. And uh, yeah, so Dylan is a private lesson instructor. Not just any private lesson instructor. He is a door-to-door uh, does house calls, private lesson instructor. Yes, that's, uh, that's how I make my living. I run a business teaching door-to-door. Um, I travel, I live in Keller up in Fort Worth, and I go as far as Mansfield, South Arlington, and I got a few students in Colleyville as well. Uh, and right now I'm running about 19 students. Very nice. What's the, what's the most number of students you've had as a private lesson instructor? <clears throat> well, um, before this, I used to work at a studio where all the students came to me, and um, I was the head drum instructor there, and I was the head band teacher there, too. Uh, we did rock bands there, and I was running about, the most I ran there was about 70 students, and I ran that for about four months. The average was about 55 to 60 students, and I did that for a full year. Nice. That's a lot. <laughs> oh, yeah. It, it kept me busy. That's for sure. It's a lot of kids to deal with. So you've got a route. Yeah, yeah. And that's how I schedule it, based on route, not based on availability (laughs) based on your availability yes based on my availability and and most people are pretty flexible with that especially when you're coming to their house um and i've discovered when you're going to their house they're very gracious and so they're they're a lot more capable of being flexible with you as opposed to if they were coming to your studio they're like we have 3 30 to 4 o'clock that's all we got you know and that's 70 percent of their of your clients (laughs) so these guys i'm teaching uh a third grader at two in the afternoon and he comes home early from school and then that night i'm teaching a high schooler at 10 p.m great you know so i it gives you a lot bigger window at the same time it's really interesting that makes a lot of sense before we get much further into uh private lesson instruction mm-hmm. you are gannon's twin brother how long have you guys been twins um Four since years. i've <laughs> about the last five years <laughs> when i legally changed my name and uh dna structure Plastic surgery is expensive. That is. <laughs> it was. It cost about thirty bucks, um, and a guy in the back alley had a syringe, popped it in me, and said, "That'll that'll change your DNA." And I trusted him. When I grew a sixth toe, I believed him. And he's been oh. addicted to heroin for you. <laughs> <laughs> and then the last one. And now I'm in rehab. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that took uh, a dark turn. That's it. That's it. Now I I knew both of you guys because we all went to the same college. We right. all went to Howard Payne, mm-hmm. um, and we were all in the music department. Yes. Uh, and that was that was fun. Good but uh, you guys grew up in Weatherford, right? Good old W Town. Yep, Weatherford. The their kangaroos. Unfortunately, the high school mascot. Yeah. I was the mascot there for two years. Really, you were yes. the kangaroo. I was the big blue kangaroo. Yep, for two years, and it still haunts me to this day. <laughs> Every time I tell somebody that, that's all they remember me by. So that, that man was a blue kangaroo. Yes, uh, a, a nine foot tall blue kangaroo at that. How do you get that tall? It's Is it the years. Yeah. Oh, and the, your, the face. <laughs> Welcome to freemusicet.org where we talk about mascotting. Uh, <laughs> the face was actually in the neck, like right oh. at the shoulders, and then the neck goes up, and then my nose was, if you can imagine this, viewers, about five inches above my head is where the nose started, and I could barely reach the top of the head. My ears yeah. were flopping up there, so it's a big costume. That's and then I had I had hips like Rosie O'Donnell on that thing too. Great, <laughs> yeah, attractive. Mm-hmm. Um, all the all the boys in the yard. Nice. So how how did you as twins decide to both go to the same college and both study the same subject? Like, how did that happen? Like, have you always just been really close, or you know, did you hate each other but you both got scholarships? <laughs> what what happened exactly? I'm not totally sure. I think it just happened, really. Yeah, you know, it it's just kind of how it went. It's kind of weird. Actually, you know, I remember Dylan was the one who had the scholarship audition. Yes. When in, it was in October, and he mm-hmm. came down for a big scholarship audition, and I was just kind of along for the ride. I really wasn't sure what I was going to do, and then I went ahead and auditioned while I was there. 
and got offered a bunch of money. And I'm kind of a simple person. I don't like to put a lot of hassle into things a lot of times. So college offered me a lot of money. I was like, well, okay, yeah. that will do. Yeah, that's kind of how I felt about it because I, I also looked at UNT. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's they got 200 to 250 undergrad percussion majors alone, yeah. you know, and thousands of music students there. And total, all your programs put together, 13 jazz bands and at least six orchestras and multiple percussion. And it was like, could, I could go to a college where I get one-on-one attention with eight or ten percussion majors at that time, or I could go to a college and not be noticed and probably grow less because I, I didn't get as much out of it as I could, so I opted for the smaller university. Mm-hmm. Pretty cool. Let me ask you this question. Shoot. Right now, uh, doing this door-to-door private lesson thing, mm-hmm. what, what instruments are you teaching? Um, most students tend to be guitar students. That's mm-hmm. what a lot of people are interested in. You, I, I've heard of that instrument. I don't know if I've ever seen one. <laughs> Not from your wife at all? Right? Yeah. No. no I mean, there's guitars everywhere. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's a good instrument to be teaching. Do you have percussion students as well? Uh, bass students? A couple or? drum set students. I don't have any... I, I, well, I picked one up this week that I think an older gentleman, he's about 40, he's going to start taking bass lessons from me. Um, and I've got a banjo student. Banjo student? got a banjo student, and we do uh, Earl Scruggs style, style banjoing. We did a little bit of claw hammer, it didn't work out too well. And then we do, uh, I've got some piano students too, mostly young. So mainly guitar and piano, and then a bit of drums at the moment. So how how did you get how did you get your studio started? How did you get word out that you were teaching and uh, that you would come to people's houses? Did you did you just go to door to door to begin with? Well, you know, what what you... happened is I, I left the music studio I was at, um, and when there's an instructor at a music studio, there's really two kinds of people in loyalty. There's people that are loyal to the teacher and people that are loyal to the studio. And I had about four students that were loyal to me, and so when I left, they called me. And said, hey, I'll pay you this much money to come over to my house and teach. And so I started doing that the moment I left the studio. And I worked several different jobs for a couple years in there, but kept driving out to their houses. And then about two years ago, I decided I wanted to do this full time mm-hmm. and see how it goes. And as soon as I started putting any kind of effort into building it, students just came. Yeah. And I remember when I first put effort into it, in two months, I went from two students to nine. And that's when I went, you know what, I really could t- turn this into something. And so I just kept pushing it, did some business research and how to do it right. And then in 2010, I actually, I, I left my other job and started doing it completely full-time. And I've been doing it full-time for about a year and a half. Very nice. So. What What is that? You, you said you studied a lot the way you do it right. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what are the ways to do it right and wrong? <laughs> the, ways to, <laughs> the ways to do private lessons right and wrong. Um, boy, that could, be, that could be another two hours, but Reader's Digest it. Um, a lot of teachers, um, when it comes to music... Well, well, to me, the most important thing with teaching private lessons, number one, is your relationship with the student. That is first and foremost. Um, I think a lot of teachers put that on the back burner. Um, to I, I just picked up a new drum student about two months ago, and he's a second grader. Um, and when when they called me, it was a reference from another student. They said, we heard of you from this guy, heard you were really good. We want to come and try you out. And so we want to try one or two lessons to see if you fit with this kid. He's already tried three other teachers. He doesn't like them. So I was like, all right, I'll go try it out. I walked into the lesson, and I saw he had an Xbox. I went, oh, Xbox, you know Minecraft? He's like, yeah. Oh, yeah, I run a server for Minecraft. He's like, oh, really? And we talked Minecraft for 10 minutes. And then I sat down and asked him, what do you do to play drums? Like, why do you want to play? So, and we talked about it, and he said he wanted to play Rock Band. He's like, I played that video game, and I thought it was really cool, so I'm playing some of the songs off of that. I was like, all right, let's do some of those songs. And at the end of the lesson, the kid runs into the mom, like, and I don't mean run into the room, like runs and goes, bounces off of her. Because I was talking to the mom, she's like, well, it seemed like a good fit. The kid runs in, points there and says, you're going to hire this guy right now, and runs out of the room. The next week, we were sitting there playing drums. We had played the lesson before, but we were playing, and he looked at me and said, you know why I chose you over the other teachers? And I said, why is that? Because you're interested in the things I'm interested in, and you'll let me play what I want. 
and the light bulb clicked, which is what I do for most students. Most, uh, actually, all my students, I let them play what they want. And if they want to do rock, we do rock. If they want to do R and B, we do R and B. Whatever. Um, but too many teachers are trying to turn students into a, a a mirror of themselves. I'm a classical pianist, so all my students have to be the same classical pianist. I'm a professional jazz trombone player, like Gannon, and so all of my students have to be jazz trombone players. And um, and most people quit music lessons for that reason because they're trying to. A student takes lessons to like David Grohl, um, drummer for Nirvana, and then became the lead singer for Foo Fighters. Um, he took drum lessons or guitar lessons way back in the '70s, and he quit because the guy was teaching him classical guitar, and he didn't want to learn classical guitar. Um, and so, you build the relationship with the student, discover what they want to be able to do, and then you go down that road. And that's the biggest thing in private teaching, is do what the student wants to do. I've got one student that does mostly Metallica, and then I leave that lesson, and I go to a student where we do all George Strait. And then I leave that lesson, and I go to my 80s shred metal guy. And then the next day, I hop over to my student who does progressive rock and gent, if you've ever heard that style. It's kind of a new thing. No. Um, it's polyrhythmic heavy metal, like do 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 and the and the weird thing about it, the rhythm never the rhythms never repeat themselves. That's the point of gent, oh. is it's very linear. It never repeats itself. Through composed. It's through composed. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. College word. So so just letting the and and guiding the student and letting them do what they want is is the big hook. Right. So with with that idea, the advantage is that the kids remain interested and they're a little more excited about practicing because uh -huh. they're making the music that they really care about. Mm -hmm. uh, I imagine some people complain the disadvantages are that you might be missing out on some well-roundedness and or some important fundamentals. What do you think about that criticism? Oh, yeah. um, I've gotten that criticism before and um, early on when I started teaching that way I got that criticism and realized that you have to take the fundamentals and shape them towards their goals. Um, like all my guitar students start with uh, playing first finger, second finger, third finger, fourth finger on all the strings, just B B D D D D D D D D D D, just walking up frets, no matter what style. Even if they're just they just want to learn how to play chords and strum, we're doing that exercise because it frees you up to do a lot of stuff. Um, and so there's there are core essentials that stay in my curriculum that apply to all styles, um, but. If my student wants to do all strumming, we're not going to learn how to solo in Dorian mode, you know, and start doing some blues stuff. But my guy who wants to do Stevie Ray Vaughan, we're absolutely going to do that. We're going to do that in the first three months and start delving that road because that's very essential to that style. But we're not going to be learning bluegrass licks, you know. So, so there, there is a starting core that every student starts with and then it branches towards their, uh, uh, towards their style that they're looking for. Well, I would guess, like, uh, you could start them, you know, uh, kind of like you did with your second grade kid. You hook them in mm -hmm. and um, start them with the things that they want to do and the direction they want to go. And they see, oh, this guy's going to let me do this and do that and do this. And then you can kind of gain, I don't know, a certain level of trust. Mm -hmm. And then you can start throwing stuff at them that they don't necessarily want to do. Mm -hmm. But you tell them, hey, you need to know this. And they'll believe you and they'll trust you in that. Yeah, absolutely. Versus, you know, that's something that we deal with um, in public school classrooms. That's kind of a problem is that kids these days are always asking why. Mm -hmm. Why do I have to practice this? Why do I have to do that? And they don't have the foresight to understand a lot of the reason that they're doing some technical exercises and stuff like that. They're just bored by it and turned off by it and stuff like that. But mm -hmm. because of the nature of the public classroom, it has to be that way. It's yeah. the way you have to teach. Well, not only that, but there's there's some difficulties whenever you've got a room full of clarinet players to start playing Stevie Ray Vaughan music. That it stylistically doesn't make a lot of sense. And then, you know, learning to play guitar licks is one thing, but then on an instrument that's not the guitar... Now you're having to actually dive into a whole bunch of theory instead of just patterns and things. That's so true. Different instruments really have kind of a different core of things you have to do. One of the things I've noticed with students is that you've kind of got this uh, this journey that they take where 
learning to play an instrument, the idea of learning to play an instrument is really alluring to everybody. Right. Like, oh my gosh, I'd love to be able to do what I see this musician person doing. I want to be able to play guitar like that or play piano like this. Mm-hmm. And so there's this huge level of excitement that lasts for about the first hour of practicing. <laughs> That's it. That's about <laughs> That's right. That's it. And then after that first hour, all of a sudden the realization that it's going to actually take a long time to learn to play like this person sets in. Mm-hmm. And it's really easy for students to lose motivation and never get past that first hurdle. Yeah, But absolutely. to just run smack into it. So uh, what, what, do you, what do you do about this particular hurdle? Um, well, the, the first thing I do, and this is the advantage of me having a one-on-one. Mm-hmm. Um, this is something that is really difficult. I, I guess you could do it in the classroom, but it'd be, t- it'd be tough having 30 clarinetists. Um, but I teach people how to practice. Um, and about a month in, I, we, I, I dedicate an entire lesson to practicing. And all we do that lesson is practice the way I would practice. I'm like, okay, so you're having problems with this chord and this lick. Let's run it like this. Then we're gonna, oh, it's still giving us problems, so let's, let's learn how to scaffold it and break it down to just the problem and then build on it. Let's learn how to identify the problem. Let's learn how to, you know, and then we talk about how because we identified that problem, we took what could have been 15 minutes of practice and turned it into two. Wait, wait, wait. You, know? you mean to tell me that instead of just telling them to practice, you teach them how to practice? This is ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's mind-boggling, isn't it? Um, but the moment you teach a student, um, well, the moment the student starts practicing efficiently, they, come, they always come back the next lesson and are like, that actually worked. Like, yes, it did. You sure did. And then they start getting into the flow. Um, and that's part of the trust thing you were talking about. Once you gain the student's trust and you say, this is the way to practice, it works, and you have them start using those techniques, they just take off. Um, I've got one student that probably the third or fourth lesson years ago, we, I taught him how to do that, and he caught it right on and started practicing like that. A year later, on his 11th birthday, he was a soloist in the House of Blues in Dallas and just ripping it up. And the audience... When he first started playing, the audience got silent because they couldn't believe there's an 11-year-old kid up there out playing the band full of 20-year-olds that was on before them. In every way, better tone, better licks, better... I mean, just out, outclassed them. Um, and he, he, he caught how to practice, and he still does. With that student, it's really fun because I don't teach him songs anymore. Um, we talk technique, we talk new ideas, we talk musicality. Um, but every week he comes in and he's got four songs that he learned on his own. He's like, hey, I learned these four songs. Cool. Mm-hmm. That's it. So it's, it's really a self-facilitated lesson by that point, which is really fun. Easiest kind of student to have. Yeah. There just aren't very many of them in this world. Yeah. I, I guess that's the biggest challenge in any music educator's book is just getting your students to practice and getting them to do that efficiently. Learning, because, mm-hmm. you know, the, the goal of a, as, as a musician, you know, you're final goal is to become your own best teacher yeah. in the end. You know, to be able to self-diagnose and to be able to know what to do to get to the next step. Yeah, and I, that's, that's why I, um, I do what I do, because nobody invests into something that doesn't give a return. Mm-hmm. And if students start practicing on their own and they don't have a return, they don't practice because they've learned the first time that it's a waste of time. Oh, so that's why I that's take hard. that's why I take an entire lesson to do the practicing so that they can see at the beginning of the lesson I couldn't touch this at the end of the lesson I can do this upside down in the sleep in a bathtub you know I can do this <laughs> however I want so there must be something to this um, and be and because they experience the results um, they start to get hooked into creating those results on their own I like that I've thought for a while uh, I, I've been doing some teaching at a college with some, some applied clarinet and saxophone. and I've, I've come into the new philosophy that the, the number one thing I need to do is make the students excited, get them to listen to someone who plays their instruments, and get them to practice. Mm-hmm. Like if those three things happen, then it doesn't matter really what else I do. They're yeah. going to be way more successful than 90% of other private lesson instructors because mm-hmm. the kids are putting in work and they're listening yeah. and they're excited. Mm-hmm. And they won't listen or do the work if they're not excited. So all those things coming together. Now, of course, at the college level, if the kid wants to major in music, you know, I can use a scare tactic. Right? <laughs> oh, yeah. I can be like, look, you're practicing two hours a week. That's nice. But you're a music major. And other music majors are practicing like 21 hours a week. And you're going to have to compete with them. So do you really want to be a music major or do you want to do something else? Uh, with, with high school students and with middle school students and even younger elementary students, mm. you know, that pressure isn't there. Yeah. How, how do you... 
express to them how much to practice? How much do you expect them to practice? Um, well, age and um, honestly, I also divvy up practice uh, based on their interest level because I think every teacher just has to come to the realization that about 10 to 20% of your students even want to be professional musicians. And most of them are just there to have a good time. And so you got to treat it like that. So my students that want to have a good time, if they're practicing three or four times a week, 15 to 30 minutes each time, I'm happy. Um, because that's, that's all they want to get out of it. And since I'm doing it privately, one-on-one, -on -one, uh, I can get away with that. In a band program, it's kind of a different story. You can't right. just tell your students, eh, practice a couple times a week, you're okay. You know, well, you, because it's the collective whole that that becomes an influence. Yeah, you, you've got a different thing there because you've got a specific performance goal and deadline. Yeah, and, you've and got deadlines. I you, don't. You become responsible for how everybody performs as a group. You have to bring them all at once. So yeah, you've got different pressures there. But if all my students practice three or four times a week, man, <laughs> I, 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 would, I would actually be very happy with that. Yeah, so, and, and when parents ask me, I'm like, you know, give them three, three or four times a week, 15 minutes. Let them do that. That, and one of the reasons I let it be light, like some students, if they have problems with that, I'm like, let's write this out, and we write out in their lesson book, all right, you're going to practice Monday at this time, Thursday at this time. That's all you're going to do this week. Um, and what that does, because when they're not practicing, there's no results. Mm -hmm. If they start doing a light practice schedule, they'll see that there's a little bit of results in it. And they're like, oh, if I just do another day of 15 minutes, I'll have more results. And then you tag that on. So it's easier to start with a lighter load and let them see that it actually makes a difference than rather saying, all right, six days a week, 16 hours, don't take breaks, don't stop for meals, you know. Yeah. It, you let them discover the value of practice instead yes. of just forcing it on them, saying, look, practicing is valuable and you have to do it this much, now go. Exactly. You know, I, I think that, boy, that, that whole concept right there is something, you know, most band directors these days um, – you know, most of the people that I run into, they're at least in their 40s or 50s. That's the majority of band directors right now in a lot of the schools in the area that I'm at. And they come from a different generation with a different mindset. They were taught by a totally different generation with a totally different mindset than the world that we're in now. Mm -hmm. And um, what, what I'm getting at is that they were told to practice. That's how it was done back then. You did things because people who were more well-respected than you and in charge told you to do it. Mm -hmm. That's the way life worked. You just did it. Mm -hmm. You know, We don't live in that world anymore. Yeah. Kids these days question everything. Mm -hmm. They don't believe anything until they experience it for themselves. It doesn't matter how many times you tell them. And this, this young generation is just a totally different world. Yeah. Um, especially from an educator standpoint, we've, we've got to come to the table that they're at. We can't drag them over the way that we were taught to do things, mm -hmm. you know? And I think that whole concept right there is what needs to happen. It needs to become more and more self-discovery for the student, and we're just kind of that guiding light, yeah. so I, to speak. I think a lot of teachers are afraid of doing that because they're afraid they're going to lose their job. <laughs> you know, if you teach your students to teach themselves too much, then they don't have a need for you. But if you're doing it right, they still need you there. Well, um, I mean, the, the value of having a qualified instructor is huge. Yeah, I still have a, I have a guitar teacher. That's he's seventy years old and a beast, um, and he teaches me, and I'm going to be with him for a long time. And then after I move on from him, I'm going to get another teacher in another field because there's always someone out there who can show you something that you've never seen before. Totally, every person has something to offer that you don't, and so you can always, even if you just take lessons from a guy for a month, that's worse than you. You can still glean from him something. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that more what people. Uh, that aren't teaching students how to think for themselves. They've got other things going on. You know, either mm -hmm. they don't have that connection that you were talking about, mm -hmm. or they just don't know how to get a kid there. Like, just your one lesson about how to practice and how to scaffold that, that's a lot of experience and training right there. Yeah. Just to be able to instantly diagnose what a student's doing wrong, where they're getting hung up, and then help them restructure that. That's a lot. And that's why kids don't know how to do it. Yeah. I, I've started in my class... My classes are fortunately small enough that if I don't have a headache, I can have them spread out <laughs> around the room and have some private practice time right there. Right. And then I can go by and listen. We listen to playoff lines. I think playoff okay. lines are huge. And a good method book, just working your way through it, 
can be hugely beneficial because it adds it on piece by piece. Mm -hmm. For for you, you're having to really scaffold everything based on what songs they want to play. Yes. Things that makes a really different challenge. You'll have to explain how you overcome that here in just a minute. Yeah, yeah. But you know, just having time to practice where you know they're practicing and they're right there in front of you doing it. It, it really they can learn how to practice on their own from doing that. It's so huge. You get a different yeah. thing. Just because so many kids will start taking lessons and they'll never really pull it out by themselves. Mm -hmm. They'll never do that first step of just getting started. And last week we were talking to Yagal. They've got a guitar sitting on one side of the room and an Xbox 360 sitting on the other side of the room, yeah. both with a temptation. And which one has the more powerful temptation for a student? Probably the Xbox. Yeah. Uh, definitely the Xbox. The Xbox. Yeah. I mean, High definition. There's, there's no competition between the two. Mm -hmm. There just isn't. That's kind of the whole concept of what Yagal is doing. Which yeah. I think is so cool. I, I, I want to go back and do, just re-interview that guy again. Right? The interview was so much fun. <laughs> I just love watching that guy talk. And but yeah, the idea that we're we're having to compete with that. And the thing is, mm -hmm. being a guitarist in the first year may not be very much fun, especially yeah. at the moment you start and you're you know you're doing four finger exercises and you're learning a chord. There's lots of fun to be had there, uh -huh. but it's not near as fun as what it's like five or ten years down the road. And yes. students don't always have that vision. Mm -hmm. and, and the way I overcome that is, um, and I think you mentioned this, Gannon, in the past, that by the second lesson, the end of the second lesson, I, um, one of my goals is that a student is playing some sort of song. I don't care what it is. Um, one of my, if I got a second grade student, I don't start them out of a book for piano. I teach them finger numbers. All right, this is finger one, two, three, four, five, and then I write a bunch of finger, I write a bunch of numbers on the page. I'm like, all right, this is all McDonald. See if you can figure it out. And they sit there and go, all right, starts with the second finger. Yeah, both thumbs are on C. Ba, all right, uh, sorry, I'm banging the the table. <laughs> they start with the second finger, like okay, and then they figure out a song. In ten minutes, they can play Old McDonald. Um, and in fact, I did that with one student their first lesson, and then they came back the next lesson and was like, we had a show and tell in class, and I played it for the whole class. I was the best pianist in there. Hmm. One lesson, and he's the best pianist out of 40 students. Why? Because he could play a song. There were other students in that class that had been taking piano for four years. All they could play is exercises and scales. They can't play a song. But what do people want to hear in music? Songs. They want to hear music. They don't want to hear me running. They don't want to hear somebody running a circle of fifths all day. And so, if you can get the student playing songs, and then as soon as they get that song, it's like, all right, let's do another song. All right, let's move on to another one. And this, as long as the longest I want to spend on a song with the students about two months, because once you get there, it starts to burn them out. And if we're not getting the song in two months, I'm like, we'll come back to this. Let's do an easier song. I mean, two months. That's just eight lessons. Eight lessons. Eight lessons. Yes. And most students were. We got a song in four lessons. Um, in four lessons, we're playing something. Yeah, let's move on to something else. I'm amazed, too. Just Old MacDonald, it's a song the kid knows. Mm -hmm. And so that makes a big difference because they're connecting, oh, I've heard this song. Mm -hmm. I've experienced music before, and now I'm experiencing music in a new way. I was just thinking this week, one of the songs we were playing was Bingo, you know, right? There was a farmer, had a right. dog, right? Uh, and these kids were playing it over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. Like, they were like, ah, I'm playing this song, and I know the lyrics in my head. And yeah. I mean... I'm thinking, bingo, you're excited about bingo? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, just, just playing a song and something they've heard before is huge. It's because, and, and um, when it comes down to it, the reason somebody gets into music is because they want to create something. Um, they don't want to play scales all day. They don't want to be proficient. They're not thinking about being proficient in their instrument. They're thinking, I can sit down and play a song. And mm -hmm. so that has to stay a number one goal. I think lesson books, some lesson books, a lot of band programs do a good job in that, in that each little exercise is a song in itself. Mm -hmm. um, so the student con continually feels that they're accomplishing something. But a lot of mistakes lesson teachers take and do is that they try to teach too many exercises in the beginning to, and too much technique to try to get the students prepared. And then by the time they're ready to play a song, the students quit because all they've been doing is all day. They don't want to do that. They want to play a song. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And the idea being that once a student starts making music and they start getting that thrill, all of a sudden you start competing with the Xbox and maybe they will work on skills and technical exercises now because they're having that they're, type of fun. They're seeing that they're creating. Yes. I think that mistake, that mistake boils down to bringing the students to our experience instead of taking our experience to them like we were yes. talking about a second ago. Yeah. You know, we're saying, oh, well, this is the stuff that I see as important. So you need to learn this because I say so. 
Right. But because I say so, it doesn't work anymore. And you got to bring it to them and go, okay, what do you want to do? You want to play music. You want to play songs, you know? Mm-hmm. It's so. again, our biggest thing is competition right now with other stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was talking to one of the directors that I work with, and he said, playing the trombone was the video game when I was a kid. That was the most exciting thing that I could be doing at home in my leisure time. I could read a book or I could play the trombone. Now they've got the internet, they've got TV, they've got video games. There's all this competition for their time. I think you're right. I think you've got to get them playing music and getting that experience that maybe 30 years ago you could have put that off for a while. Right. And now it's even more important. Even back then it couldn't have helped. It couldn't have helped but help. Right. <laughs> couldn't have helped. I had to think help. about that for a second. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't help but help. Help, help, help. Help, help. help. Beatles. <laughs> Beatles so, song. Maybe. Okay, so uh, no, that's, that's really pretty cool. So it's just, it's kind of a philosophical shift. Do you think, I, and I do, as I'm thinking about this, that that's okay, something Okay, I disagree. What? You like that, so I disagree. Oh, okay, Just because you like it. <laughs> no, go ahead. All right, so... How this, not to teach your students. Right. <laughs> well, you have an opinion, I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, man, I'm right, you're wrong. <laughs> I, I have degrees. <laughs> I got a degree in this thing, man. Yeah. Okay, so... Uh, <laughs> Anyway, yeah. students, uh, now I don't know what I'm talking about anymore. It involves students. I got that far. Yeah, that's usually mostly what we talk about oh, now I'm on back. this podcast. I got it. I got it. <laughs> so do you, I think that this method has got to fit a lot better, though, with pop instruments than right. it does with classical instruments. Even though, I mean, there really technically aren't any pop instruments or classical instruments. You can play any type of music on any instrument, but... Yeah, I thought, I thought I heard somebody slapping you through the microphone. Through the microphone. <laughs> I'm just saying that, like, guitar and piano and drums, those are instruments that you can start making sounds on right away. Right. Versus a lot of wind instruments, uh-huh. or even, like, violin and things. The first sounds you you spend a lot of time, those technical exercises are just for making sounds so that you can then turn around, make notes, and make songs. Right. You know, a clarinet student will spend uh, a week or two on just trying to make a tone before they can do very much else. Mm-hmm. That's tricky. Yeah, and I, and I think wind instruments can get away with that a little more because as the student is working on making a sound, they make progress. Yeah. Because day one on the mouthpiece, you're going... <laughs> And then day four, you start getting this nice buzz thing going on. You're like, oh, oh, I'm making a sound. I'm better than four days ago. And then a week later, you shove that thing into the horn and go, you're like, I sound like a duck. Yeah. (laughs) I could be a high duck. I could be a low duck. You know, they, and they get excited about that. But they're making progress and they're creating, even if it's simple as making a quack, they're creating. Yeah. You know, starting to get there. I guess I guess one of the big challenges on wind instruments is you you've got to be able to integrate both of those things together the tangibility of learning a song and music and still working on things like tone production and finger technique and stuff like that mm-hmm. but tone production especially I mean some instruments take years and years to develop a good tone on especially really things like oboe well, something that you mentioned earlier made a lot of sense to me, and that was that you said whenever you teach a piano student that you take and forget music notation, you just start making those sounds right away. Yes. Way too many students on wind instruments, I think, start trying to make sound and read notation at the same time. Yes. And I think that's really foolish. For example, as a woodwind teacher, I want to get the kids' fingers moving, mm-hmm. right? So a clarinet student can play most of the sounds on the horn just by moving their fingers in the right place, and you right. can move them in order. You know, thumb, one, two, three, one, two, three, pinky. Just learning how to move up and down the horn, all of a sudden, they're playing scales without even knowing what a scale is. Mm -hmm. They're producing all these different notes. So instead of learning one note at a time, and now we've built up to six notes, and now we've built up to seven notes. Yeah. Learning those finger patterns, we've learned 16 notes in the first two weeks. And, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, just starting to make those sounds. Forget music notation. Get them making sounds and then relate that to the music notation. Exactly. Which is the way music should work. To begin with. Right. Yeah, you think about the way, um, and you've said this on a podcast, the way kids learn how to talk. Uh Um, A child begins making sounds that sound like words at one to two years of age. And they begin talking a little bit after that, somewhere between two and five. And then we usually start teaching kids how to read between five and six. But for music students, we hand them an instrument, try to tell them how to sound on the instrument, say some words, and read it all in the first 15 minutes. Right. And so, of course, their mind just gets blown. And they also progress very slowly because you're making them multitask. Mm-hmm. And the brain cannot multitask. Well, it's real easy to lose right. something. 
to lose something in there. Like, oh, I'm making a sound, but I've got to both listen to that sound and read that note. And what does that note mean again? I mean, it's got to be right. a D or something. How long is it supposed to last? Oh, wait, I'm supposed to be tapping my foot too. Yeah, you're just yeah. blowing your brain. So if you, I really think, and if, if I was going to rewrite the band curriculum, the first month would not have any music involved. You know, and, and I understand the drawback <laughs> from that, but the first month would be, all right, here's how you blow through the horn. Everybody blow through the horn and make some noise. All right, we're all going to play the same note. Cool. Now we're going to play this note. All right, we'll play this note. Let's do Mary Had a Little Lamb with those. those. First 30 minutes, they got a song under their belt, yeah. and it's terrible. A lot, of people do, <laughs> a lot of people do things like that with numbering systems. With, and it, it'd be more of, of a numbering you, system. you make it sound very simple in a full band class. <laughs> no, I know. I'm, I'm, I'm walking through. sound on your instrument is like, you know. That's the first I mean, week, you that's, know. That's, yeah, I understand that. Getting that out there and figuring out how to yeah. put them together and hold them and how not to break it. And why do you not sit your flute on the stand? And, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I mean, yeah. There's, there's a lot of complexity there. Mm-hmm. But I, I do think you're right. I think you've got to mm-hmm. separate the producing sound and making notes. You've got to separate that from notation and not try to do it all at once. Yeah, and that's and that's really my point, is I think if we'd spend more time in the program separating the two, we'd have um, not just a higher success rate, but we'd be seeing more virtualistic musicians coming out of programs. Just look at the Suzuki method and what it does over in Japan. Well, I, I, there's know. maybe a different thought to that, and that's yeah. what are our goals anyway? Like, okay. do we want to prevent? Pre- do we want to produce a lot of virtual C musicians? Is that the idea, mm-hmm. or do we want to just produce a lot of proficient musicians? Or what I think we do the worst in most school programs, and that guitar pro- programs do better, mm-hmm. is to produce lifelong musicians. Yeah. Right. We whenever we teach math and stuff, we want to produce students that are able to do math in their daily lives for the rest of their life. We're not trying to just get them through this year, or just you know, there's like a purpose for that. Same thing with our programs. And I find that the hardest thing is, all right, I play euphonium. I just graduated from school. I don't own a euphonium. And there's no place for me to play euphonium in real life. Like only in the school band. And now I'm here. And maybe if you're lucky, your community has a community band. Right. But you and your buddy who play ukulele are not going to get together and jam out probably. <laughs> they should. They should. I'd love for them to. But they haven't been taught how to do that anyway. Yeah. They've been taught how to play in a band. And so without 60 other people, you're useless. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, based on that. So is, is that our goal, producing lifelong musicians? Or is our goal, I mean, what, what is it? What's the idea behind music education to begin with? I think my, my goal is to produce, produce lifelong musicians. Um, and the amount of success a person has early on really determines how lifelong their career is in music. Because if, if somebody plays guitar for four months and all they can do is read six notes off of a page and play them, then they're going to quit and 30 years later you're going to hear the age-old phrase of i wish i had stuck with it mm-hmm. i hear that from most parents oh, Lord. and that's why a lot uh, of my students take is because the parents are like i quit and i wish i didn't i played way back when and i was really good and the I, band that i was in was really good and, and then i was the first chair in seventh grade <laughs> but then i yeah. dropped out and if we um it's just a, but you know if i was in charge of the music education for the entire u.s i'd be revamping it like crazy so that students that walk out of the band program they can play with the group but they can play by themselves and they're autonomous on their instrument well and we we try to make those goals happen but they usually only happen for the top students mm-hmm. yeah the, the top students that come out of band programs are equipped to do just about anything mm-hmm. but a lot of the middle students just drop it I, yeah. i'd love to see some real numbers on it we need to call up lance beaumont and talk guitar with him because yeah. he's really into class guitar for public schools he believes mm-hmm. not only does it draw different students than band programs mm-hmm. but that in many ways they have more success. The well, students yeah, play more. He's writing his doctoral thesis on that, isn't he? I don't know. We'll, we'll find out. Coming, Something like that. Coming soon to the Free Music Ed podcast. Well, I'd be interested to hear that. Yeah, we'll have to make that happen. Well, you know, I think um, that part of the way that we shoot ourselves in the foot... Okay. Uh, part of the way that we shoot ourselves in the foot um, in, the, in the classroom education is that we're trying to teach a really high level... And we're trying to teach really proficient musicians instead of lifelong musicians. And the, one of the number one things that does is it cuts back on numbers. Uh, I've, I've got time. to disagree in one way. I think that it's mainly the system. The system is the biggest problem. I don't know a single band director. I don't know a single orchestra director. I'm going to hit all the gambits here. I don't know any elementary music teachers. I don't know any college professors that don't want their students to be lifelong musicians. Choir. Choir. Oh, yeah, them. <laughs> them, too. Who else is yeah, this? Vocal. Uh, professional har- yeah. harmonica teachers. Harmonica teachers. They right. all want their students to keep doing it forever, I think. 
But a lot of our systems are not really set up for that. Right. Yeah. How do you, in a class of 80 students, teach each individual how to be proficient on their own mm -hmm. without them doing a lot of work outside of it? Well, I don't know that there's actually a good answer for that. There's lots of things that, that kind of make sense in theory, but the cost of doing them is either too high, or either through financially or through time, or just they don't work out practically. Like, they, this is a great idea, but now I go try to do it with my 80 students, it doesn't work. Or my 60 or with 30. 20 students in one room, it's hard to do anything. 20 trumpets in one room, you want to have them all play different things at one time, no one can hear themselves. That would be apocalyptic at that point. Apocalyptic. <laughs> that's exactly, that's where I can have 20 clarinet students spread out in a big room, and I can still they can still hear themselves. 20 trumpet students can't. Yeah, that's true. And that becomes a challenge. It's Well, not to mention band programs are set up for one or two guys to teach 60 people how to play 12 different instruments. Mm -hmm. No wonder it, it doesn't work out the way that we want to. That system's set up differently versus what you've got, which is an ideal situation in many regards, mm -hmm. where you've got a single student at a time and you're able to focus completely on their needs even though it's just once a week. Yeah, and, that's, and the difference between the way the band program's set up or set Da, da, da. The difference the way the band programs are set up and the way I do my things is honestly, this is the way I feel about it, other people can disagree, is that I'm set up to focus on the success of the student and I think many programs are, are built to um, have a successful program. And well, it's, it's for the glory of the school or the glory of the program and getting, getting that's, ones. That's and, you're right. You know. Because if you have a band program and all your students are amazing but you don't produce a band, like, you, you, let's say just this very little thing. Instead of forcing them into the instruments that you need, you let them play whatever they want, and everyone's playing saxophone and percussion. It well, be, you have no band. You're fired, right. and you're done. You know, for example, you know, not that that'd be the best thing anyway. Right. But <laughs> you see what I'm saying is that uh, it's more, it's, while most people have both things in mind, the part that's tied to your job is producing a good program. Yes. That's whether or not you get paid. That's whether or not you get the next job. Mm -hmm. So taking music that's easier and working on it longer in order to make a better contest rating is more important for your job, your career, and your school mm -hmm. than focusing on music that maybe challenges certain sections more or different things like that. Or playing harder music for contests than what your students are ready for because of the division you're in. All these things are set up to be more important than the students. And a yeah. good program can work around those things. Mm -hmm. and eventually get there, but it's not really set up for that. No, and, and the system, I mean, you could just pretend that somebody could walk in and magically turn around the system and turn to something else, but that's next to near impossible, so... I'm not sure that there's, I mean, like, as inefficient as band, choir, and orchestra programs can be, I don't know that there's a better mass music education system than Maybe. having a mass ensemble. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, if you can't give all the kids individual time and you can't hire a army of private lesson instructors... Yeah. Then producing a band, producing an orchestra, producing a choir may be the best way to do those education. And there are there are education systems that have bands and have orchestras and, and are have very, private lesson teachers. Yeah, and they're and they're very successful with the mass mm -hmm. mass group of students, um, and the students love it, um, and they grow in it, and they wouldn't quit band or orchestra for the world, and they love the system, and those systems are really geared towards the student. They, they still accomplish the goals that they're supposed to by the hierarchy, so to speak, where, you know, you got to go to contests, you got to have concerts for this type of thing, and so on and so forth, but they're still able to connect with the student and have personal success, and those programs are the ones that you see go the farthest. Now, I, I've seen a lot of bad programs that have loads of mediocre musicians, but all the best programs they've cultivated really strong players in nearly every section. Like, it's, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a prerequisite to having a really great ensemble that you've produced at least some really strong individual musicians. Yeah. But a lot of it does fall on the student, too. And, but that's not unfair. I mean, if yeah, you really yeah. want to be very good at something, you're going to have to put time into it. And mm -hmm. it's not your teacher's fault if you don't put time into it. But as teachers, we can do a lot to facilitate that. Yeah, and we've got to, we've got to sell putting the time into it, which goes back to how to practice and being efficient and teaching them. So are we back? We're, we're salesmen. We're so salesmen. That's what we are. As, <laughs> as music educators, we're selling the idea that putting in the time and putting it in a certain way is going to be more beneficial. And you really, yeah, you, you have to. I mean, there's there's no other way to it because a student, um, a student's not going to take lessons from somebody who sucks at guitar. Yeah. And it's like, hey, I can play uh, Billy Jean over and over, and that's the only song I can play. And I'm going to teach you how to play guitar. They're like, no, because because what you're selling isn't a good product on the surface level 
And so you have to be, you, you, yeah, you have to be able to sell what you're doing. And that really goes for almost anything you do. So we've talked a lot about what it takes to be a good private lesson instructor. And mostly, like I just said, it's salesmanship. You've got to be mm -hmm. able to sell the idea that you've got to practice and you've got to sell the idea that what you're doing is really good and the student's got to buy into that. So what makes a good student? What makes a good student? So if, if you're taking lessons from someone, what can you do to be the best private lesson student you can be? Because we've talked a lot about teacher responsibility, but uh -huh. there's definitely student responsibility. Um, I think the best students are the ones that are willing. Um, and, it, you know, us being a student, you'll immediately think that you being the best student is the guy who can walk in and just shred and play everything. He's an awesome player. I don't... This is a tricky phrase to say, and I'll explain it. I'm not too concerned with how good the student is. I'm more concerned with how willing they are, you know. And if they're willing to learn and put in the time, and they're willing to trust me and say, okay, he's saying to practice like this, let me try it, and let me see if he's right or not, um, and then be able to come back next week and be like, yeah, it worked, or the student be able to say, you know, it didn't work too well for me. Here's what I did, and it didn't work, and us able to talk through it and so on and so forth. If a student is that, they're willing to do it, then that's, that's the best I can ask for. The students who want to become good but aren't willing to do anything to become good um, and aren't willing to trust me in helping them become good are unworkable students. And those last about three months. And so what you're saying is that as a student, regardless of what your goals are, mm -hmm. if you're willing to learn and you're willing to be trusting uh, and willing to actually do some of the work, then you're the best student. It doesn't matter if you already have some skill. That doesn't make you a good student. Yeah, because I'm not expecting a student to be the next Van Halen or the, the next Dave Weckl. I never expect that of a student. Um, what I expect of a student is to put in effort and grow, um, which goes to I tell every student... If you were at level four last week and this week you're at level 4.2, then we're doing something right, you yeah. know? And that means that you're willing and you're putting something into it and we're moving. So you need to be teachable. Being teachable, that's yeah. a good way to put it, is just be teachable. Try it. And um, even if you completely, in, if you ever have a teacher, you will disagree with them. <laughs> well, and it's, it's hard because as a teacher, it is your job to criticize that student. And we, yes. we don't like the word criticism, but it's my job to sit there, look at what you're doing, and tell you how you can do it better. Mm -hmm. Like, that's why you're paying me. So don't get offended when I say what you're doing is okay, but we want you to be awesome. So why don't yeah. you try to change it like this? Yeah. You know, that you can't be offended to that. And it's hard for students, mm -hmm. especially when students put in a lot of work and they can't always see why or what that change is you're trying to make. It's all that trust mm -hmm. and just going ahead and putting forth that faith. Yeah, and something that'll, if I can do a, a two-minute, a very short tangent on that, um, something that helps with that trust with the student is teachers not punishing mistakes. Um, I think too often teachers, like when a student makes a mistake, they attack it, and they go right after it. Um, because their goal, the goal of the teacher is to take every mistake and flip it around for good and, and make the student successful. But from the student's point of view, if every time they make a mistake, you're you're attacking it, and that's and you're not doing anything beyond that. Let's just say it's very shallow. Every time a student makes a mistake, you stop their playing and you go after it. It makes the student feel like that every time they make a mistake, they've done something wrong. And so they're not allowed to make mistakes in the lessons. A lot of times when a student makes a mistake in my lesson and it sounds terrible, I just start laughing. <laughs> like, <laughs> that was awful. Oh, my gosh. And they start laughing, too. And what they learn... Um, through that and a lot of other things I do is that it's okay to make a mistake. It's okay to make some mistakes. What we're here to do is to work through those mistakes. I, I think it's what just, you're suggesting is that whenever it happens that you're positive. Yeah. You're not negative. Even if you have to stop them. Because something I've started changing about what I do is that I don't let mistakes go by without stopping and fixing them because it just creates this loose list. Yeah. Especially in a large ensemble. And you definitely, you don't want to let the mistakes go, but you don't want to treat the mistakes like they're something bad because mistakes are not bad. Everybody makes mistakes. Um, rebellion, you know, and just flat out doing it wrong on purpose, that's punishable. But just making a mistake, um, and, and something I, I think I'm in the habit of doing this, I don't even realize I do it, is every time I stop a student or every time the student stops playing for me, the first thing I say is, that was good. That's the first thing I always say. 
Boy, that was really good. And a lot of times I look for specific things to talk about and be, good, that's the first time you've gotten this, these few notes right here. Good job on that. That's the first time you've gotten it. Now let's look at this section because that section gave us some trouble. And just keeping it, keeping it positive, I think is, I think that's what you're, that's what I agree with on you. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, what's, what's your next step? What's the maximum number of students that you want to have? On my own, I'm, I'm, I'm looking for 30 right now. So you've got some room in your studio. I have room. Yeah, we'll put an email address in the podcast yes. if you're in the DFW area. Mm-hmm. It'll be DylanPhillipsMusic at gmail.com. Or you can go to Facebook and look up Dylan Phillips Music. That's my Facebook page. Uh, you can hit me up on there as well. And there's a, a new YouTube channel that I'll be coming out with soon called About Music. That'll be up in the next month or so, and I'll be on that as well. Cool. And I also have a YouTube page, or yeah, a YouTube page, Dylan Phillips Music. Nice. Spelled D-I-L-L-O-N, Phillips with two L's. Oh, I would have put extra I's in there. D I I I L X Q, the number seven, hashtag in. That's exactly how I spelled yeah. it. <laughs> hashtag. Hashtag, this is awesome. Right. <laughs> YOLO. Uh, YOLO. Yes. Yeah, YOLOmusic.com. YOLOmusic.com. That's, YOLO that's music. what you oh, need. No, I don't need you that. You want to get kids. I really don't. Go, 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 we're talking about going to their table. We're, we're <laughs> that's going to their <laughs> table. We're meet, YOLO. meeting you where you are. Harlem Shake videos, that's what's on your YouTube. Oh. Oh. <laughs> I think that fad's already passed. It's already is it gone. already passed? I think it's already. It's one of those things that so many people killed it so much that it's just so kinda, quick. Yeah, it's, it's on its way out. It's one. Of, it's just dead now. Some people will be listening to this podcast in a month, being like, "What are they talking about? Harlem? Are, what? Harlem? Uh, are they recording this in New York? Hold on. <laughs> good stuff. I Harlem. like how fast the world's moving. Harlem air shaft. That's good. Okay. You know, we've we've had an amazing time having you on, Dylan. We've got to have you on again. And, sure. Uh, we'll see when your YouTube channel thing develops. We'll mm-hmm. have to post that on our website too. Yeah. And just uh, see what's going on there. Pretty exciting, you know. And uh, yeah, you, you guys are still twins this whole time. It's it's unfortunate, but it's, yeah, it's, pretty, <laughs> it's pretty always that way. All right. Well. Uh, again, we've had a great time having you. Do you have anything you wanted to say that we didn't let you say or interrupted you during? Um, practice. Practice? <laughs> and then love what you do. If you're not loving it, you're doing it wrong. Oh, that's. I like mm. it. I like it. Maybe. Deep. That was that deep. deep. I mean, there's people out mowing their lawns right now going, I don't understand how this applies. You need, to, turn, you need to dance while you're mowing the lawn, dude. I'm pretty sure it's specifically not to do that on the more instructions. There's some people I don't want to see dancing while mowing the lawns. So. Well, there you go. <laughs> uh, I, I, he's right, though. You guys keep practicing, and we'll see you next week with more content on freemusicit.org. All right, goodbye. Freemusicit.org, yeah. Keep practicing, guys.